Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 45, the good, the bad, everything. Welcome to History Against the Grain, where the points are added up, the grades are tallied, and summer vacation has begun. How is your summer feeling, Chris? Well, let's put it this way. The Giants, they're still in first, right? Maybe. Uh, I don't have the updated uh, standings here. But close. At very they're least, pretty they're close. darn close, Josh. <laughs> um, I have the, the thing that my story, my personal story that makes me feel oldest is that I went to summer camp when I was 14. This relates back to, to what we were talking about. Um, but uh, I went to summer camp when I was 14. And uh, and my mom would send me uh, box scores. Like mm-hmm. I'd get when, when mail came, it would be I'd open a letter and, and uh, the box scores cut out of the paper would be there and it would show the the Giants games uh their box scores and then she also would cut out the standings and uh that's how I would that's how I kept up with the Giants in the summer of 1989 as they were heading toward the, their first pennant in what is that a long long time 25 years something like that um so my point though is that for for listeners you can keep up with the Giants standings by listening to History Against the Grain it's another service we're offering now uh we will update you on Giants standings week by week I like that. That's almost inspirational. There you were at summer camp laboring under God knows what regime, uh, <laughs> but keeping an eye at all times on the uh, on the baseball box scores. So. Yep. Kevin Mitchell's drive for the MVP. <laughs> it was all there. It's impressive, I tell you. I'd yeah. like to share one of my uh, youthful stories about the, the, the national pastime and the day I was going to go to the Oakland Coliseum and they were giving away, it was a bat promotion. This was back in the Charlie Finley days. Charlie Finley was yeah. this sort of strange, curmudgeonly, miserly owner who uh, somehow discovered a kind of new age appeal to certain things. Like all his ball players were wearing white shoes at one point and growing mustaches and winning world championships. Uh, but one of the things they did, they had green bats. You know, because the Kelly Green mm-hmm. and Gold of the A's, the Oakland Athletics, they had green bats. And so there was a, a green bat giveaway. And this most traditional sort of uh, nativist uh, Charlie Finley uh, would do anything, you know, for a good promotion, right? Even if it was turning the, the sacred traditions of the national pastime uh, on their head. Uh, they had a mule that used to run around the outfield, for example, called Charlie O the Mule <laughs> that had an Oakland A's blanket across its back and would gallop wildly around the outfield but this was green bat day green bat and uh so i was ready to go i was super excited and right as we're getting ready to leave a friend of my dad's came over who hadn't seen in a long time and they sat down uh, and began talking uh probably had a beer or something you know it was a, a hot summer day in northern california and and there i sat and 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 none really the wiser as to you know how long it was taken or anything else so at some point, you know, my mother probably had to tell him, hey, you're supposed to take him to the baseball game. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, let's go. So we jumped in the car. We drove across the bridge 
to the uh, uh, the city, uh, or uh, actually no, we're going to the Oakland Coliseum. It was the Caldecott Tunnel through the Caldecott Tunnel to the Oakland Coliseum, and we got up there uh, right to the gate for entry, uh, waiting to get my green bat, uh, only to learn what Josh. They were out of bats, right? They were out of them, yes. The promotion was good for only maybe the first, what, I don't know, 1,200 people or something. <laughs> so there we were at the game, but no bat. And, and that's the day you became a Giants fan, right? <laughs> well, and then I think that year he traded away all the best players, Catfish Hunter, Reggie Jackson, all those guys that won those championships. So, yeah, that was a chapter closed as we like to say <laughs> <laughs> oh boy well speaking of uh remembering we had this weird conf- confluence of uh memorials this week including memorial day uh which was monday uh, i guess we're releasing this friday so the previous monday but also um a day that has not really been remembered very much uh, in in the past, at least as a as a national event, and that's the Tulsa massacre. Where we uh, just reached on June first, the hundredth anniversary of the Tulsa massacre, um, an event that I would I would say uh, arguably was was hidden in the dustbin of history for for much of the past hundred years, and has only recently been kind of unearthed as something that is popularly discussed and and and, and thought about. And then um, on June fourth, we're going to have the thirty second anniversary of the Tiananmen Square Massacre, the June 4th incident, as I believe the PRC refers to it, when they do refer to it, which is not often. And so that got us thinking about um, about memorials and about who gets remembered, who gets forgotten, why people get remembered, and why people get forgotten, or why events get forgotten. Um, so let's, let's spend a little time talking about that. Yeah, I like that. You know, and, and our, and our um, stories there are folksy tales of you know, youthful summers and, and baseball, you know, also are, are meant to illustrate a fundamental tenet of, of this idea of nostalgia. You know, when we yeah. build these these memorial celebrations or memorial days, what have you, um, there's an ex- expectation, what, of, of what we sometimes call nostalgia, that is fondly remembering the past. But, you know, I was reading recently that nostalgia, in terms of its actual uh, etymological roots, is a word that uh, comes out of the Greek that literally meant to experience pain. Mm. Uh, that, in other words, there was this idea that, you know, focusing on the past, remembering the past was just likely as not to bring up painful recollections, you know. But right. in, in our own time, and as we're going to see today as we talk about these things, uh, when we have these sort of officially sanctioned, you know, rememberings, uh, as we'll call them, uh, the, the assumption is is typically that it's supposed to be, um, you know, it's supposed to be bountiful and supportive of some great, you know, uh, past, some heritage, you know, that carries us along or something. Uh, but it would be hard to do that with Tulsa, wouldn't it? Yeah, it, I mean, definitely. And um, and you know, one one of the things I've been I've been thinking about as we as we, you know, have this this confluence of memorials is is. You know, well, why why is Tulsa being remembered now? And and um, by the way, I'm not saying it should not be remembered. It absolutely should be. And I'm glad that it's it's now become part of the public perception. But but why is it remembered now? And you know, as as a contrast, if you look at at uh, mainland China right now, um, the PRC is is doing more and more to actually stamp out remembrances of Tiananmen Square and, and June 1989. 
um, you know, historically in the last at least couple decades since it happened, there would often be uh, candlelight vigils in Hong Kong, um, sometimes in Macau, the former Portuguese colony that got turned over to the PRC in 1999. And then even after the handover of those two former colonies, um, the PRC actually allowed there to be those allowed those vigils to continue. Um, but that has has ended. Um, they said last year they couldn't couldn't allow it because of COVID. Uh, but now that COVID cases are uh, basically disappearing from from southern China, they're still not allowing the uh, uh, any kind of vigils to happen on on June fourth. Um, the famous image of Tank Man, you've, I'm sure you've seen that image, uh, used to be displayed uh, in Hong Kong art gallery galleries and other public spaces, and is now officially banned. And the ability to to uh, to um, get together, the ability to uh, memorialize, the ability to talk even about uh, about the events of, of June fourth um, have been heavily heavily constrained, even more so than the past. So there's this this counter uh, this this um, contrast between this attempt to uh, to stifle that memory, and then this this moment where we are increasingly looking back and are willing to, I'm not sure if confront is the right word, but at least recognize what happened in Tulsa on June 1st, 1921. So, um, well, it's a, great, it's a great question. In other words, why do we, and by we, I mean uh, you know, the sovereign authorities, yeah. <laughs> governing authorities, power, uh, choose to remember or not remember uh, different kinds of episodes? Because certainly Tiananmen Square and, and the Tulsa, uh, massacre would both fit in a category that uh, I think we would agree, you know, represents a great deal of human suffering, right? Yeah. So, so not that typically, you know, patriotic, you know, again, bountiful heritage affirming kind of 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 memory or or event, you know, recalled. Um, and and look, you know, I mean, the 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 quick answer is so, you know, why why does Joe Biden go? To Tulsa. Why, why does the president of the United States go to Tulsa to formally recognize this event, as you say, which had been basically consigned to some, you know, um, you know, dark closet or something of, mm-hmm. of, of the historical uh, memory? Uh, I mean, Tulsa is perfectly well known to, you know, p- people who are faced with having to, you know, teach U.S. history for the most part. But but that's not to say, therefore, it was in, you know, anything like the, the popular mainstream of 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 memory um but so there he is you know and and i think you know I, the cause and effect you know these these are these are political players right you know right. whether it be the you know the the sovereign authorities in the prc or the president of the united states or some others as we'll talk about in a second uh you know to some extent they're currying f- political favor in some way uh it's just that you know for joe biden a guy who was elected you know, with a strong, you know, the strong support of black voters, you know, p- part of his, and, I, you know, and I don't, I'm not necessarily suggesting it's a, some kind of purely cynical political ploy, you know, but part of what his political payback then to his supporters is to recognize an event. You know, he, he said, and, and I thought I was struck by it, and you and I were kind of, you know, taking it apart later, but you know, he said, we do ourselves no favors by pretending none of this ever happened. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's a kind of remarkable in its own right for, 
you know, a, a national leader in this country where there is so much that we pretend never happened, yeah. right. right? You know, and as you pointed out, speaking of closets, it's a, it's a, a crowded closet. You know, just this is before your time. It's before my time, too. But uh, an old radio show called Fibber McGee. <laughs> okay. uh, the, and the shtick, it was a kind of a comedy show, right? And the shtick was always that there was a closet that would get opened in every episode. And, and despite the warning of everybody in the room, we say, oh, don't open that closet. Because as soon as Fibber McGee opened the closet, it was so packed, this avalanche of stuff would come out of, of the closet on his head. And that's how I kind of feel about America's dark closet. It's like, yeah. hey, Joe Biden, you opening that closet door, you know, yeah. to look at this. And so, uh, you know, on the one hand, I guess that, that part of me that isn't just a cynic wants to say, maybe this is the beginning of a much bigger discussion. You know, because he says we should know the good, the bad, everything. That's where yeah. we pulled our title. That's what great nations do. They come to terms with their dark sides. And so if we want to put a best spin on this, I guess we'd say what? That this is the beginning of a very much bigger conversation about what he calls the dark sides of the American past. Um, I guess it's neither here nor there whether I think that conversation is going to happen. Right. Um, but, you know, we're doing our level best here on History Against the Grain, aren't we? Yeah. I, I mean, I will go back. I'll go back to that 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 statement. Great nations come to terms with the dark side because do they? What, what, what's an example of that? Which which nations <laughs> are the ones that have done that? Um, you know, you, and you, you think about, you know, the PRC's uh, attempt to you know, stifle memories um, versus what, what Joe Biden did in, in Tulsa. Um, and, you, you know, you start realizing what can be remembered and what must be forgotten um, in a national history is inextricably tied in with the way a nation thinks about itself, justifies itself, uh, you know, presents itself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so for the PRC, it's literally founded on the idea of revolution, right? Like that, that's built into the core of its, its ideas. It's a revolutionary government um, founded on on this Marxist Leninist Maoist revolution, it's based on this this idea of the people standing up to power and defeating it through the force of their will, through their idealism, through their sacrifice. And what were the students at Tiananmen Square if not dedicated, idealistic, and willing to sacrifice everything everything for their cause? So it puts the PRC in a very difficult position, right? How can it memorialize people um, without um, admitting basically? that it used the power of the state to stifle the very people, uh, the very type of people, at least, who are the bedrock of the way the party and the nation, the party state, as it's, it's often referred to, uh, defines and justifies and explains itself to the world. It's, it's almost like this, uh, this, it's not even a slippery slope. It's that, you know, if mm -hmm. they memorialize this, then it really does significant damage to the founding ideals of, of this system. Um, and so th that choice, you know, in in the practical terms for the for the PRC, and I'm not saying it's a good choice, by the way, but in practical terms, um, it, or rather, it makes sense in practical terms because of what it would mean to recognize the crimes of of June 4th, 1989, the violence, uh, the the massacre that happened not just on the streets of Beijing, but also in places like Chengdu. Um, that that it's almost impossible for them to both recognize what happened while also maintaining the legitimacy to continue on as this, quote unquote, you know, people's republic, basically. Mm -hmm. The flip side of yeah. that, though, is, well, yeah. Okay. yeah, go ahead. The flip side of that, though, is that 
our own national ideals, at least this kind of liberal progressive version of American history, um, is based around this idea, and you've certainly talked about this many times, of you know this set of founding ideals. Um, and our history then has been a story of progress toward the fuller expression of those ideals, um, you know, the fuller participation of different groups within the nation, all that sort of stuff. And so within that story then, it allows for these these uh, these bumps in the road, I guess. Is is that a, 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 a proper term to use for massacres and genocide and, and things that yeah, I mean, if, if, yeah. if you're totally into euphemisms, that's a yes. good one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. Giant bumps in the road, we'll say. Um, but as long as those 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 moments can be presented as, to quote the author Lemony Snicket, a series of unfortunate events, then you can kind of isolate them and say, well, we did this bad thing here. Um, but it doesn't get in the way of what we really are. You know, remember this this conversation back when Trump was elected. This is not who we are. Um, and so, you know, while I am I, all for, you know, Biden going to Tulsa, I, I totally think it's 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 a good thing to recognize these moments in the past. I come back to that idea that great nations come to terms with their dark side and again ask, well, which nations have done that? Um, and is that what's happening here? Are we really coming to terms with our dark side? Or are we merely, merely recognizing this singular moment which has entered into public consciousness largely through popular culture? I don't think it's a coincidence that there was this famous uh, opening scene to the HBO series Watchmen that took place in Tulsa. Um, and the conversation around Tulsa has, uh, the Tulsa massacre has grown since then. Um, and if it's really true that, that great nations come to terms with the dark side, then are we going to start memorializing the Filipinos killed by the American occupying army during the Filipino war? Are we going to start uh, memorializing the Vietnamese murdered at My Lai, for instance? Are we going to start memorializing the Lakota uh, murdered at Wounded Knee? So where, where does it stop, essentially? And once you start, you know, asking those questions, you know, who are we going to memorialize? Who are we going to continue to leave in the dustbin of history? You know, then you start wondering, well, how many examples do we need like this before it stops looking like a bunch of discrete occurrences and more like a pattern? Well, you know, I like what you're saying a lot, Josh, because what you're, it seems to me what you're doing is you're getting, you're drilling down to this question of what, what exactly is a nation, especially if we define that as a as a sovereign system of power uh in other words because you have two examples there the the tiananmen square you know the sort of suppressing of that memory by the prc uh and then the U, the us you know with the president going to tulsa sort of selectively as you point out airing some particular dark chapter in a whole mm -hmm you know, Fibber McGee's closet full of dark things, <laughs> yeah. you know. So, uh, and I and I think I agree with you that the, the problem with this is that it is, um, it is antithetical, you know, to the interests of a national sovereign power to really open up very much because it, does that invite then a breakdown of the power upon which they depend you know, for the, their sovereign authority. In other words, that's the fear, I think, at least. I mean, I, yeah. I, I tend to think that it it wouldn't, uh, at least for most healthy people. You know, back in the day, uh, Chevron Corporation, the petroleum company, mm -hmm. would run those commercials like during, you know, NFL football games or whatever, and it would show like a field with a little butterfly, you know, yeah. and sort of teeming with life. And, and, the, and the subtext was that Chevron 
had gone and, you know, preserved this natural habitat, right? This petroleum company, you know, which most of the oil companies are associated with what? Great oil spills mm -hmm. and environmental disasters. And at the end of the, the marketing piece, you know, the line was, you know, do, do people really care? You know, question mark. And it was, people do as yeah. a little butterfly flew off. And so you were supposed to see, you know, uh, Chevron, this oil uh, behemoth, petroleum behemoth uh, company, corporate company as a person that cares, you know, just like, you know, we're supposed to see, I guess, the sovereign nation, the, the you know, the vested powers that be as like uh, people who care, you know, mm. and that therefore, uh, what that opening up these these chapters, you know, are somehow therapeutic, I guess, or, or, or whatnot. But as you point out, there's no reason to necessarily trust that it's even uh, that it sort of makes a kind of, you know, logical self-interest of nations to do this. I mean, I think it's absolutely interest of the people to right. do this. Yes. I can't speak to the interests of power so much, but I think we under I think we understand that. Look, if if we don't get it, then all we have to do is read the the other flip side, and mm -hmm. that's here in the United States, right? Because, you know, Biden is operating in a in a partisan political environment, as we know, that is a you know a kind of white hot temperature um, these days, and so you're going to get the you know the the other side right chiming in and uh, so yeah just recently in washington 39 republican senators uh sent a letter got together and sent a letter led by uh senate uh, minority leader mitch mcconnell uh to the secretary of education uh, in the biden administration uh protesting a um, you know a, a policy maneuver that would um, provide funding and incentive to schools, federal funding uh, that uh, tackled this issue of, of systemic bias in, in instruction. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, so uh, Mitch and the boys sent a letter and, and among other things, they said that this all uh, smacks of something, quote, divisive, radical and uh, historically dubious buzzwords, okay? Mm -hmm. Particularly where the, the teaching of, say, history is concerned to try to, you know, to, to root out these darker elements of the American past uh, in the interests of eliminating, you know, systemic bias and these other things. All right, so yeah, they didn't like that, probably no surprise. You know, you're gonna get the equal and opposite reaction in American uh, political life and, what uh, McConnell and uh, the other Republicans in the Senate are, are trying to do is play to a political base that has been, you know, routinely what cultivated, I guess you would say, to believe somehow that the uh, any questioning of the national narrative, the history narrative of the United States as a standard version uh, history is is really just um, you know, as as the senator from Arkansas, Tom Cotton, put it, you know, a kind of, you know, charlatan, charlatan, uh, you know, history or something. And that, um, you know, taking a hard look at, say, slavery um, mm. by, by whatever name. I mean, you know, and, and, and they're great at sort of latching on to these memes, you know, and, and using the memes to, you know, to demonize and, and discredit 
the work, you know, that that serious, you know, scholarly work that's going on uh, as if it were just what a conspiracy or something, you know, to, right, right, to undermine right. everything good and honorable. Um, as McConnell wrote in the letter, he said families did not ask for this divisive nonsense is what hmm. he called it. Voters did not vote for it. Right. Uh, he says that uh, and he calls out the 1619 project by name. Uh, he says, among the many factual errors that have been debunked by, quote, actual trained credentialed historians uh, is the idea that preserving slavery, quote, preserving slavery was a primary driver of the American Revolution, close quote. So in other words, somehow what uh, um, lumping in all together you know, these various strands of political cynicism, you know, mm. in other words, assuming that the American people don't really want to take a hard look at the past being one strand, uh, suggesting that taking a hard look at the past is divisive and somehow undermines, you know, the nation would be another strand, you know, but but frankly, you know, as I've said a few times in our in our uh, podcast, Josh, that I, I part of me wants to say this isn't about history at all. Right. You know, it's it's not about remembering or even memorializing. You know, it's about being, as you put it, on brand. Mm. You know, in other words, uh, what they're really doing is marketing a certain, um, uh, you know, a certain image uh, right. of of you know what. America is supposed to be and, you know, with a kind of understood racial, ethnic, you know, um, I, I identifier in there, you know, uh, that supports and in, in their case supports the claims of white nationalism. Right. So that, you know, when we present the pilgrims at Plymouth Rock or something, it's very much in concert with that idea of this being white nationalism, you know, and supporting what Rick Santorum you know, said here a few weeks back, as we mentioned in the last mm -hmm. episode about, you know, the, 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 the real culture of America is really, you know, Anglo culture, that is culture, you know, derived from the, you know, the, uh, the English, uh, uh, from England, from, right. from English history, in other words. So, yeah, so that's a kind of brand, you know, white, white nationalism in the political sphere is a kind of brand, and it has its various threads, including its quasi-historical threads, but I say quasi because I think, you know, ultimately <laughs> they're not really getting in the trenches with this here. In other words, in, in, you know, in the way that marketing does, they're hydroplaning across the top, you know, of, of what we might call the facts. Can right. we still speak of facts, you know, to, to, to advance their brand, but they're not getting in the trenches with this. They're not really looking at you know, the demographics of early colonial America, you know, the racial makeup of early colonial society. You know, they're not looking at the the ethnic and linguistic component, you know, of of, of the, the colonies. You know, they're just throwing around, as you say, buzzwords, you know, pilgrims, fathers, uh, patriotism, you know, what, unity, uh, you know, those kinds of things, right? Well, yeah, and even, I mean, the thing that, that really stuck out to me is, is him, you know, now laying claim to, uh, or making making reference to these trained professional historian, academic historians as if they care what trained academic historians actually have to say 
unless, you know, in these one moments that they can find some who agree with them. Um, but, you know, they're, they're trying to present this idea that the status quo is somehow apolitical and any attempt to revise it is therefore political. But of course, the status quo, the, the, the brand they're trying to, to sell is extremely political, right? It's meant mm-hmm. to get across mm-hmm. a political idea about, you know, to use our, <laughs> our title from last week, who and what we are. Um, so and we, we got to call that out because I think too often we see uh, uh, people see, you know, kind of lay people, non-historians see the history they were taught as somehow being neutral. Um, and this history that we're trying to present in this podcast in our classes as as something other than that. Um, but that's nothing could be further than, from the truth. Yeah, it's not only a false premise, right, but a really cynical one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, okay, so, you know, we've dedicated ourselves here in this second year of History Against the Grain to not just, um, you know, lamenting or critiquing uh, things that need to be lamented and critiqued, uh, but also to try to put forward, you know, some better alternatives, right? So right. as we go into uh, the segment uh, that follows, uh, that's what we're going to try to do, keeping in mind that the story we are about to now tell absolutely, at least as far as you and I are concerned, absolutely then gives lie to these really cynical and you know uh, false premise that we see coming, not just out of McConnell, you know, in the Senate Republicans, but really in the broader culture wars of the, the world we live in. I'm sick of the forms, I'm sick of being misread by men in dashikis and their leftist weeklies. Colonize wrath, they're shining new path. The converted castle of Morris design. If you want to stay the weekend, well, we wouldn't mind. The plots they are hatching, the surface is scratching. In the open corner where the news is As we head into our next segment, uh, what we want to do, and, and Chris is going to take the lead here, is is try to recover history that's often presented as being somehow marginal or peripheral, ephemeral, um, only worth paying attention to at very specific moments and then and then forgotten again. Um, and this is, I think, a, a big issue with with world history. And as Chris is going to explain, it's it's a problem with how we present our own national history as well. So tell us about what you've kind of gleaned from from looking into uh, the peoples and cultures of West Africa as it pertains to understanding uh, American history better. Yeah, I'd love to. And, you know, I just have to say, though, that, you know, part of my my inspiration for this today was, you know, listening to our guests, Gina and Tam, uh, on, the, on the last episode, you know, because Gina's book on language in modern China, you know, was so was so great at sort of, you know, finding these threads, as I'm calling them, these kind of cynical threads, you know, uh, where, um you know, this effort in, in, in modern China to what uh, proclaim, a, you know, a, a mother tongue, uh, yeah. a national Chinese language that turns out to be, you know, pretty exclusionary, yeah. you know, uh, starting from a pretty elitist place, uh, not necessarily having a kind of organic ground level existence where people actually live and speak in their everyday lives. Right. You know, right. Uh, so. Uh, there's something very similar. And, and you know, the, the reason why we do History Without Borders, you know, even if I'm talking about, say, the U.S. today, is that we'd like to to think that the stories we're telling and the, the issues that we're looking at, you know, are issues that are germane and relevant 
know, to us living in the modern world, not just us living here in California or the United States or North America even. But, you know, in some sense, on a, on a kind of global scale, these issues of, uh, you know, of the past as they relate to the history of now, you know, are absolutely relevant for us as we're trying to go forward. In other words, I guess what I'm saying, Josh, is I'm not just trying to build a different monument or a different mm -hmm. memorial than the one that's already there. Because I think, you know, what, what we're saying in part today is that, you know, that doesn't necessarily do us a lot of good, does it? No, a, a cleaned up monument with the soot wiped off is still a, a monument to, to often ugly things. And, and so we want right. to maybe tear those down, continue tearing those down and build something better in its place. Yeah, something that is, um, you know, able to, you know, be more versatile, um, you know, more applicable to, to, to the lives we live. I mean, a statue, let's say, if we're memorializing something, you know, is, is inert, it's static, you know, it's, it's frozen, its meaning is frozen, whether or not it has any application to the lives we live now. And yet there's this sort of what, this kind of, um, you know, bland, uh, you know, urging uh, that, that we nevertheless remain you know, worshipful of it or something, you know, yeah. so. All right. So, yeah, what I want to talk about is how what what, you know, Mitch McConnell and the boys would call this this drumbeat of revisionism and negativity mm -hmm. uh, is is actually just the opposite of that. I mean, well, it, it is revisionism. I don't know if it's a drumbeat of revision. I choose to interpret his meaning there as to be, you know, not supportive. Uh, right. But this idea of it being divisive, I would take issue with. I think again, it's a cynical understanding of what the truth will manifest in a national body politic. Because again, you know, uh, looking back at the the therapist model, isn't the point of of going into therapy to get that stuff out, to get those repressed memories? out because it will actually make you whole that's, that's as far as i understand it yes that's the way i understand it too my friend so uh, i'll let you know when i undergo a lot of therapy in the days to come <laughs> but in all seriousness apparently that doesn't apply to a national history therapy but we want to repress 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 don't open that closet door you know um, because it'll somehow it'll jeopardize our wholeness if we do so that's completely at odds, that kind of, um, you know, that kind of diagnosis completely at odds then with what we actually know to be true about our mental health generally. And I guess what I want to say is what's true by and large for the mental health of individuals, you know, is also true for the mental health of whole populations. All right. So with that in mind, we go forward. Now in America, the United States of America, there's nothing more familiar in that standard version of history than looking at our national origins in terms of what are usually sort of colorful European ethnic uh, categories, you know, so Irish Americans, Italian Americans, you know, uh, Scots. Uh, oh, my gosh. You know, uh, and, and these are celebrated, right? You know, mm -hmm. German Americans. Now, at different times in the past, maybe they weren't, you know, necessarily as popular, you know, uh, but but by by now, by the 21st century, most of the European classifications of of heritage and ethnicity have been neatly folded into the standard version of history and found their place in what you know is sometimes called 
the melting pot. But as I tell you, you know, I have a problem with that idea of a melting pot because what it really means at the end of the day is that if you're Irish or if you're, you know, German or if you're Polish or something, that what you've done is largely assimilated to a kind of Anglo standard such that your ethnic identity can be what now? Maybe a bumper sticker, maybe a one day holiday, you know, maybe some other sort of material trace of something, a flag that you wave. I don't I don't know. But otherwise, you've done what you've assimilated right. to this kind of Anglo standard. But, you know, as as much as that seems kind of like ethnicity on the cheap to me, when it comes to African-Americans, they don't even get that for the most part. You know, mm-hmm. uh, in other words, typically when it comes to the standard version history, There's no flags to wave about that, you know, that folksy homeland that you come from, you know, uh, you know, Norway or or Ireland, you know, or I'm thinking of the, you know, the the Ancestry.com sort of little profiles, you know, that people get, you know, and they have the little flags of the places and and all that, you know, um, so. You know, with African-American, with black lives in this country, it's if anything, it's just a kind of blank Africa. That's Mm -hmm. yeah, that's where you're from, Africa. And there's none of the same kind of romance, you know, or sort of heritage, you know, fond heritage reflection or any, you know, like that. Um, You know, I mean, there there are efforts like Juneteenth. You know, and others to try to give African-American people, you know, a rich connection to to heritage. But there are precious few, I think, would you agree, relating to Africa itself? Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely. No, I think I think, you know, Africa is presented. There's, um, you know, that that old joke, Africa is not a country that we find ourselves saying every once in a while. Right. Um, No, there is that 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 um, that smoothing or that that. you know, that presentation of Africa as a thing, you know, the second largest land landmass on the planet, yet it's often presented as this monolithic thing from which people came. And, and therefore that says enough about heritage and ethnicity and all that. Nothing more needs to be said. And I, I think um, for a long time, uh, a lot of historians didn't want to do the work to, to try to go any deeper than, than saying they were from Africa or maybe West Africa, if they wanted right. to be even more specific. Right. Um, and it, it, yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to say you were really on the leading edge of something if you at least said West Africa, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, it would be the equivalent of saying, you know, for someone instead of saying, I'm proud of my Irish heritage, of saying, I'm proud of my European heritage. Yeah. No one ever says that, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? but, but, you know, we're talking about a continent, after all, Africa, you know, 12.5 million square miles. It's a big one uh, with extraordinary variety and diversity but all of that gets as you say smoothed over glossed over into you know no no sharp edges on this thing, into something called africa yeah, hey look josh i mean even west africa alone is immense right i mean it's basically comparable in size to the continental united states you yeah. know so even if we say west africa we've only done a little bit better you know, and, and this is, I mean, you know, look, the question is then, you know, is this the best we can do? You know, and that's the first question, is it the best we can do. And the second is, why does it matter anyway? You know, uh, yeah. and I, I mean, you know, and, and just a short answer to that, you know, it was, I know your what, favorite uh, 
historian was Wilhelm Hegel, right? The German philosopher? <laughs> yes, yeah. I thought so. Was famous for uh, having said that where Africa is concerned, there is no historical part. They play no historical part in the world, basically, yeah. Africa. So there was Hegel just simply denying that there was even a, a you know, a, a history. And, and so that, you know, particularly in the age of empire, I mean, we could trace this thing as a lineage, right? You know, that Africa gets invented in the age of European colonial empires. Uh, as this, again, as you pointed out, this kind of monolith of non-being, you know, mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, non-civilization, non-history, non-being. Um, and so the second question, you know, why is this a problem? I think it's pretty clearly, yeah, it's a problem if unlike proud Irish Americans, Italian Americans, Polish Americans, etc., if you're an African American and all you can say is Africa, you know, that that doesn't necessarily give you then the same kind of um, historical identity. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, look, I went to a thing on our campus one time, you know, on, on, in support of a new uh, club on campus for black students. And the name that was chosen for it, you know, and the, and the person who was presenting this to us, telling us about the, the organization, the name, he said, was a Swahili name, you know, and well, you know, I mean, look, I do a little bit of world history teaching now and again, right? I understood that Swahili was the kind of merchant's language that emerged out of East Africa, made up of, of Bantu uh, African uh, language parts, but also what? Also Arab, yeah. you know, and other sort of Indian Ocean influence. In other words, Swahili was a language, a very sort of specialized language that became a part of a special kind of, uh, you know, market based uh, exchange between East Africans, Arabs, Persians and others, you know, in 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 that part of the world. Now, as we know, for the most part, those who are involved in the Atlantic slave trade, that is those who are enslaved and forced to the Americas are coming not from East Africa. And again, keeping in mind a 12.5 million square mile continent, these differences matter. They're coming from the western shores of the African continent, where no one, for the most part, spoke Swahili. Correct? It would have to be a, a, a crazy story if there were if there were a few. But um, yeah, probably right. not a, a very popular language that far away, as you would expect. I mean, even you know, we mentioned you mentioned that even West Africa is massively diverse. And I think that the statistic is that when Nigeria became a nation, that it alone had seven hundred different languages spoken within it. So we're talking yeah. about. You know, massive, massive diversity. Yeah. Um, it's po probable that West Africa alone is far more diverse in a place like Europe, where we do have all these, you know, these identities that come over to the United States and are celebrated. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the idea of somebody being just African, just West African is, is you know, there's some usefulness to the, the idea. To, there's usefulness to generalization, but it, al it also is erasing a lot of specific cultural traits and specific cultural inheritances. That I think you're going to make the case. A lot of those things do come over to the United States, do come over to the Western Hemisphere um, in the course of the transatlantic slave trade. Well, right. And I guess in Boston, because you used to live there, right? Uh, yeah. On St. Patrick's Day, they, they make the river green or something? Is that's that Chicago. That's, that's Chicago. That's in Chicago. Okay, yeah. excuse me. So 
uh, it would be like telling, you know, proud Irish Americans on St. Patrick's Day, you know, watching the river, that the language their ancestors spoke was Polish. Right. And have them raise that Polish language flag as a symbol of their um, ethnic pride. I mean, you know, I guess if you told that to an Irishman on St. Patrick's Day, especially if he'd been drinking a lot of Jameson, you're probably gonna get punched in the nose, right? (laughs) But that's in effect what we're telling our African-American students. Learn a few Swahili words, you know, maybe a few things from the material culture of East Africa or something, you know, and and you got your heritage. And I think that's dramatically unfair, you know, I guess is what I'm saying. We can do better uh, in answer to that early, uh, early question. Um, okay. Uh, there's so much to say, but here's what I want to say, I think in, in, you know, in particular about how we can do, how we can do better. All right. Um, we can start with what actually happened, uh, in this convergence of European civilizations, West African civilizations, and what becomes then this, you know, uh, nearly four century long, uh, tragic, but extraordinarily significant uh, migration, forced migration of black African people to uh, the Western hemisphere. In other words, let's go back to, you know, how that actually came about, how that actually happened. Now, now that's a huge subject. I'm not going to to do much more than touch on a few specific kinds of points today. But if you were setting this up, say you were teaching this for your class or something, the one thing you want to do, I think, right away is to recenter the narrative. So instead of this being a story of brave European explorers, and that's typically how they're framed in an age of exploration, mm-hmm. opening up, you know, the world's oceans you know, for the for the first time, particularly in the, in the case of Africa, let's say opening up the African seaways, as one uh, scholar put it, you know, giving credit to the Portuguese, let's say, for opening up the African seaways, you know, is that we recognize that that is an extraordinarily, you know, kind of chauvinistic view of what actually happened. In other mm-hmm. words, to properly understand what happened when the Portuguese arrived in West Africa, we would almost have to start not even with the Portuguese themselves, but the peoples of coastal West Africa, the Mm -hmm. great diversity of peoples of coastal West Africa region. The Arabic name is the Sahel, uh, meaning that more Western part of West Africa that tends toward the Atlantic Ocean uh, to see what it is they were doing that would have drawn the Portuguese there in the first place. Right. In other words, the impetus wasn't just for the Portuguese to wake up one morning and decide we got nothing better to do than risk life and limb by sailing our boats over the horizon line south to meet sure and certain death. There was an incentive, right? And where did that incentive come from? Well, it came from history because the Portuguese as a Mediterranean and Atlantic people were well aware of the tradition of things like the gold trade that were coming out of the Saharan climes of West Africa. The question was always, you know, I'm told when Abraham Lincoln saw the Niagara Falls, he asked, where does all the water come from? Mm -hmm. What was the question the Portuguese were asking about African gold? Where, Where does all the gold come from? Where does all the gold come from? And the answer was going to be this Western part 
of West Africa, right? This Sahel region of Atlantic West Africa. So they wanted to find out about that. But the point is the impetus for that was already present in West Africa. Now, I recently read this fantastic book by a Frenchman, a French scholar by the name of Francois Xavier Favelle. And it's called the Golden Rhinoceros, right? It's a it's a history of Africa during what he calls the the Middle Ages, right? So basically, roughly from say the year 1000 up to about the time of European contact in the 1400s. And he describes this period in West African history as a golden age, mm-hmm. even though it was often depicted instead of something like the European dark ages as a dark age he said it's only dark because we haven't shined any light on it you know Mm. in other words the idea that it's going to be the portuguese or the spanish or any other europeans who are going to bring that light to a dark place west africa as i said the worst kind of chauvinistic historical conceit because as it turns out we shouldn't confuse the basic ignorance of these west african peoples and lands uh, the that is to say the Portuguese or Spanish or later English and Dutch ignorance of these places or for that matter even the Arab because the Arabs had been in West Africa trading in gold and things you know for centuries but there seemed to be a kind of a void then we're understanding and, and uh, you know these peoples of, of Atlantic West Africa concern and so you know we shouldn't confuse that then with the fact that either nothing was going on there or there was nothing worth worth knowing right right um and that's that's so typical right is that if if we're not willing to look you know you had that hegel quote before what that speaks to is just intellectual laziness right that he's not willing to actually do any of the actual work of figuring out what was happening um he wants to be able to dismiss it because he doesn't want to have to think about it and i think that that laziness, that intellectual laziness, has has colored so much of the way we we think of of the past of huge portions of the world. Um, you know, history as a discipline right. coming out of Europe. Uh, you know, post Enlightenment, we'll we'll, we'll uh, specify um, was mainly concerned with with European stuff, and to the extent they cared about anything else, it was places Europeans had encountered and um, and engaged with. Um, but but even then, the actual search for knowledge was was very very limited. And often, you know, came down to where that the question you asked, where did the, where did the gold come from? And once you had the answer, then nothing else was really all that significant uh, to know to know more about. Yeah, and what was worse in the, in a you know in the context of the Atlantic world was that you know it wasn't just by accident or you know a sort of omission or something, but rather it it's kind of like what we were saying earlier about nations. It it was in their vested interest not to know these things, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. To not recognize these histories, and that's really ultimately what, why we're doing it. You know, that creates a very healthy, dangerous, uh, oppressive legacy that continues yeah. down into our own day. All right. So what what uh, uh, Xavier Favell says? Look, if, if you know, if they're dark centuries of African history, it's only by virtue of the weak light shed on it. You know, the, the golden centuries, as he calls them, were not dark. They were forgotten. They were dark mm-hmm. because they were forgotten, in other words. Uh, OK, so uh, so, yeah. So do, does this matter? Now, part of the problem, as we've already suggested, was was conceiving of Africa as a kind of monolith and therefore people just generically from Africa. It was a, an American scholar by the name of Melville Herskovitz 
in the mid 20th century. He was one of the first sort of serious anthropologists to try to deconstruct this whole kind of racial imagination, right? And Herskovitz uh, was an Africanist uh, interested in doing what basically up to that time it said wasn't worth doing. That is trying to understand African culture, West African culture included, and, and, and history, because the basic idea was that there was a void, that it was a dark uh, place that is symbolically dark, not just because of the, you know, the complexion of the sub-Saharan peoples, but because that represented also a kind of historical void. But Herskovitz didn't believe that. In fact, he had a real problem with this whole idea of Africa to begin with. He said, it is thought of as a separate entity and regarded as a unit, a singular thing. In other words, to the degree that the map is invested with an authority imposed upon it by map makers. In other words, part of the problem were the maps, right? The mm -hmm. maps imposed a kind of uniformity and kind of void on Africa. There were European maps, of course, you know, in this case, that uh, only reflected that um, that ignorance, that that vested interest, a kind of heady blend, I think, Josh, both ignorance, that is, a, 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 you know, a, a scarcity of actual firsthand knowledge combined with uh, an interest not to know anyway. Right. Right. So, uh, OK, so part of the problem here is another scholar, uh, Ali Masri, says in his article, The Reinvention of Africa, he says, you know, European imperialism in Africa played havoc with the African memory, played havoc with the African memory, because instead of having history, you had this void of understanding, this kind of chauvinism, imperialism, colonialism that rendered African people, in this case, even West African people, as, uh, you know, all the tropes, right? Backwards, inferior, primitive, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so... Again, you know, part of what the, the memory part of this is, is how our memories standing between us and the thing we want to know, how they become distorted. Mm. In other words, the distortion isn't necessarily reflected in the original moment of history. It's yeah. something that interposes itself much later between us and that moment of history to otherwise distort, right? Yes. The yeah, thing that I we're trying to know. I, I, I'm so happy you said that because I was just reading this thing about about Central Asia and and the author makes a, a very similar point and I think it's a it's such an important point to make because um, she's talking about how um, uh, Pamela Crossley she's talking about how integrated Eurasia was historically and she says the alien alienization of Central Asia from European Chinese and South Asian familiarity thereafter meaning um, you know at a certain point in history is both a mark of our modernity and the point at which a sense of an integrative ec integrated ecumene was lost. And so, you know, you can go back right. and you can study these moments where people actually do care, right? Where they do actually see right. these things as connected and important. And then what happens is that the way that historians later write about this stuff tends to erase that that moment, erase that that knowledge, erase the, the actual connections that once existed. And what's left behind is a blank space where there used to actually be stuff filled in. Yeah, exactly. And it's that inner, I'm calling it that interposed constructed memory that stands say halfway between you and the time period that you're interested in uh, that, that that becomes the the stand-in for the actual reality itself right mm -hmm. so in the case of the standard version history of the united states you know we're talking about a narrative that was basically created in the 19th century right you know uh, well i mean you know even the first english colonists were here in the early 17th century 
So what we end up lauding as our true self, our real history, is something that was constructed 200 years after the period ostensibly we're describing. Okay, And that's very much what's happening here now with Africa and the idea of an African heritage or African identity, particularly West African and more specific as, as we're going to see than that. Uh, and I think part of it, you know, honestly, Josh, that I can throw in here is that it's, again, it's, it's the sovereignty trap. Yeah. Because if you're going to take your cues from power, then as you, we said earlier in the first segment, then, then the interest of power is to preserve power. It's mm. not to open the closet. It's not to look at all the dark chapters, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, say what you want about the PRC, but according to their own logic, they're not necessarily wrong for keeping Tiananmen Square under wraps because their basic interest is to keep a lot of stuff under wraps, yes. right? To yeah. maintain power. All right, so... Look, there were a couple of different models that followed of what Africa was, you know, because with all that denial, you can't, I mean, you almost can't fault, particularly in the age of post-colonialism. That is, you know, when you see the European empires in Africa fall after World War II and you see national liberations in West Africa and places like, you know, Ghana, let's say. We've talked a little about Nkrumah, you know, as a mm -hmm. post-colonial, um, you know, West African uh, Ghani's, you know, leader who was, you know, trying to argue for the, the integrity and centrality of, of, of an African experience rooted in, you know, that part of the continent. Well, okay, so that that also then enlivened a bunch of folks, you know, uh, globally, but also here in the United States, to want to rediscover then the glories of Africa, right? That 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 far from it being a historical void. That it was it was the equal of say European imperial history, and that you could find these empires in West Africa, like the historical Ghana or the historical Mali uh, Empire, Songhai. In other words, these rather centralized political entities, uh, you know, centered around the the Niger River region and the gold trade. Uh, with uh, the Sahara that accrued a lot of material wealth and therefore a lot of sort of political clout and who fostered, among other things, you know, uh, fostered learning and, and religion and study. And so you could go to a place like Timbuktu. You know, I always thought mm -hmm. Timbuktu was a place my brother was threatening to send me if I didn't keep bugging him. I thought Timbuktu must be the farthest place there is yep. because of the look he was giving me. He'd say, I'm going to send you to Timbuktu. <laughs> and so I knew it was a long way away, but it was actually a place, right? It was a, it was a, a, um, you know, a, a cultural place. It still is today, but it was once seen as sort of the intellectual cultural heart of what were the great you know, Niger River um, states, the great, you know, sort of uh, West African imperial states. And so there was a lot of focus on that. And you can understand that, right? You say, look, you know, Europeans, you're crowing about these great civilizations. You go, well, guess what? We have those in West Africa, too. That's what uh, Ali Masri calls romantic Gloriana. Romantic mm, like that. showcasing examples of African state building that Europeans would find impressive. Yeah. Great kings, impressive empires, etc. But he said, and that's, that's a sort of natural tendency to want to try to fill the void, right? But, you know, then you're falling into the sovereignty trap again. You're mm -hmm. trying to define identity and culture and meaning only through the lenses of power and great monuments. He said there was another response to it, another response he calls romantic primitivism. He says uh, it was for those who celebrated what was simple about Africa, 
not was not what was monumental and powerful, but what was simple. And guess who he quotes? One of our favorites here on History Against the Grain, which was Amy Césaire, mm-hmm. who he very much puts, Ali Masri puts, in this category of romantic primitivism. Uh, and he quotes uh, Césaire by saying, it salutes the cattle herder rather than the castle builder. Mm. I love that line. That's good. You yeah. know, now we don't have to go in search of an African identity only at the most vaulted echelons of power. We can find it right there in the soils and along the coasts and in the river regions, you know, of, of West Africa. And Amy Césaire actually penned a little bit of verse. He said, hooray for those who never invented anything. Hooray <laughs> for those who never discovered anything. Hooray for joy, hooray for love, hooray for the pain of incarnate tears. My negritude, he says, my blackness is no tower and no cathedral. It delves into the deep red flesh of the soil. Amy there. Yeah, right. I mean, that's some really beautiful uh, yeah. sentiment. And I think the perspective is one that the SVH is completely or entirely ignored with respect to Africa. Uh, not to mention enslaved African people, let alone, you know, African-American history to this day, which only really gets ramped up, by the way, if you notice, uh, you know, black history about the time of what Martin Luther King and the bus boycott in the 1950s, Montgomery bus boycott. But then, you know, the signing of the uh, Federal Civil Rights Act of 1964. In other words, not coincidentally, the SVH giving space to black history when it's going to coincide with what? Some progressive legislation yeah. by the federal government, you know? Right. <laughs> but that just leaves out the preceding 350 years, that's all. You know, what might we have missed? And I would say uh, where West Africa is concerned, we miss the people, first of all. But number two, it means we miss their skills, their know-how, their stories, their songs, their poetry, as Amy Césaire says, their humanity, which after all, uh, you know, enslavement was meant to what? Was meant to abridge or deny or erase. In other words, by looking closer at this, we can find what another scholar, Jenny Sharp, calls the immaterial archives of history, the intangible quality of affects, dreams, spirits, and visions that art and literature, in her case, uh, would give, uh, you know, would give color to. In other words, instead of looking for it at the, you know, at the at the core source of power and sovereignty, let's do as Amy Sajera suggests, as Jenny Sharp uh, suggests, and go to the to the land itself, to the people, to the lives of the people who then are going to be caught up in that dreadful chapter called the Atlantic slave trade, and who will then find themselves you know, over the course of centuries becoming the nucleus of new populations here in the Americas. In other words, that's where we're going to find the meaning of those people's lives as they become rooted in the new soils of America, including what becomes the United States. So, look, I can't even begin to do justice to this sort of Atlantic West Africa today, other than touch on a few points that anyone, you know, wanting to follow through or follow up on this, uh, you know, maybe to teach about this in place of the normal or traditional narratives. You know, what what is this place, this Atlantic West Africa, this Sahel region? You know, it's a place of rivers and people. 
It's wildly multi-ethnic, multilinguistic. Fulbe, Seninke, Jakanke, Malenke, Wolof. I mean, these are just some of the names that should be able to fit in where what? Irish pride, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> Polish pride, you know, Italian pride. In other words, we should have and, 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 and as a culture support recognition of these remarkable West African cultures, histories and, and identities in the same specific kind of way, recognizing the diversity, the heterogeneity, of course, uh, a lot of these folks were Muslim, you know, because of the, you know, the trade across the Sahara, you know, with Arab and Berber traders who are, are Muslim, you're going to get folks now who are part of a kind of global religious culture of Islam and who are going to be bringing all of this with them now as enslaved peoples against their will into the, uh, you know, to the, the lands of the new world. Um, so much to say between the forest and the shore north of Sierra Leone, modern day Sierra Leone, the forest disappears and all along its northern margin is fringed with orchard, bush, trees, uh, some 10 meters high, able to resist spells of drought. Uh, in other words, what becomes then the agricultural uh, endowment, you know, of, of West Africa, which after all ranks is among the oldest you know, traditions of domestication, mm -hmm. uh, of agriculture, of pastoralism. You iron know, making. Through, yeah, iron making too. You know, 2,000 to 3,000 years before the Portuguese ever show up, mm -hmm. you know, on the west coast of Africa, you know, in, in modern Senegal, you had farmers and herders. And as you point out later on, metalsmiths, you know, Africa has its own Iron Age, you know, commencing a century or excuse me, a millennia before uh, the Portuguese arrival. Um, rice cultivators in the Gambia River region, both wet rice and dry rice. If you think of rice, you know, in the typical American cultural sort of melting pot, you know, uh, vision, what you think, well, clearly that's, you know, our Chinese and down, you know, for rice, you know, we do China, you know, rice. Asiatic, right? Well, mm -hmm. you know, the Africans had their own tradition and that tradition is going to be the one that then comes to, for example, North America in a place like the Carolina Lowlands and Georgia Seacoast Islands where rice will become, African rice will become one of the first staple crops in the plantation system. Now, I have to say right away, I'm not making the case here for contributionism, Josh. Yeah. I'm not suggesting, see, we should know more about West Africa because of the contributions that people make. That's really problematic. All of this was done by force, in effect, a kind of kleptocracy, you know, a stealing of people, a stealing of traditions. Uh, in the guise of the slave trade. It's, it's actually, frankly, it's a lot more important than mere contributionism. Mm -hmm. Because what I'm suggesting is that these traditions that become embedded in the American soil are going to be the traditions that make American culture, not just contributions in some, you know, Norman Rockwell, <laughs> you know, frame of, of uh, a multicultural America, a melting pot America that really in the end is, is white folks and other people assimilating to that. This is what is the very stuff of what becomes American culture. So yeah, much more uh, significant and serious than something like mere contribution. Um, 
the problem for a long time was not only as you suggest there weren't enough scholars in the Western Hemisphere that were becoming, you know, vested and steeped in the actual histories of, say, Atlantic West Africa. Uh, one of the first, by the way, was a, a Jamaican Walter Rodney, right, mm -hmm. coming uh, out of the West Indies. Uh, actually, uh, Rodney was born, I think, in I want to say Trinidad, but um, University of the West Indies in Jamaica. And Rodney was one of the first Africanists to come from the Western Hemisphere, right? And he writes a book about what he calls Upper Guinea, which is this you know great territory along Atlantic West Africa, where he's actually going there and he's becoming familiar with languages. He's becoming familiar with archival sources in some of the European repositories. He's doing oral histories. He's talking to people on the ground. He's learning about the geography. So that's in the 1960s, uh, which, by the way, you might recall Walter Rodney was ultimately was assassinated, right, uh, in his uh, native home in a... Um, you know, in a, a, a political hit, in effect, because of his outspoken, you know, support of um, West West Indian autonomy and, and African mm. connection. All right. Well, anyway, so there's a whole story behind how we become more fluent and versed with these African stories. Now, the one I want to mention, I'm going to take the rest of my segment time here today talking about is a, maybe an unlikely scholar. Of, of Africa and, and West African and, and African cultural um, creation uh, in the Americas. And her name is Gwendolyn Midlow Hall. Gwen Hall, who was born in 1929, and, and she's still, she's had a long life. She's 92 years old, still alive. Uh, but it was Gwen Hall, in some ways the most unlikely of scholars, who really begins to unpack all of this far beyond the bland generalizations and generic formulizations. Uh, born, as I say, in 1929, Gwen Hall says she learned about what I call the standard version history of America as a little girl growing up in New Orleans. She said, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Remember, this was before the under God, God phrase yeah. was put in. Uh, there she is, a little Jewish American girl in New Orleans doing the Pledge of Allegiance, one of the great assimilative rituals, you might say, of the American classroom. These were the words we all had to say at Wilson Elementary School, says Gwen Hall, as we assembled each morning with hand on heart to watch the hoisting of the stars and stripes. I didn't know what the words meant. They confused me because I was born and grew up in New Orleans during the 1930s where justice was at best a bad word and there was no equality for African-American or women or poor whites. Even one nation individual, uh, indivisible didn't make much sense given the racist adoration of Confederate generals depicted on horseback and huge statues throughout the city in public spaces. So for her, as a precocious child, understanding that this story just didn't add up. Well, uh, after a very eventful life, uh, well into her late 30s and middle age, Gwen Hall decided uh, to go back to school uh, to become a scholar. And she uh, went to the University of Michigan, where she earned a PhD 
in Latin American history. As she put it, she spent the next 80 years trying to figure out not just what liberty meant, but how to help make it happen. And her decision to pick up a doctorate uh, in Latin American history at, at Michigan was her, um, you know, her bold stroke as a single, effectively a kind of single parent mom or a mom responsible for a couple little kids trying to put herself through grad school. Now, uh, she was successful, I'm happy to say, and earned her PhD in the late 60s, published her dissertation, which was a comparative look at slavery in Saint-Domingue and Cuba. Hmm. So this is one of the first serious efforts to do a kind of scholarly investigation, a kind of comparative slavery systems in the Atlantic world. She was uh, having lived in not only New Orleans, but also uh, in Paris. Uh, she had learned French. She uh, was fluent in Spanish. So she was able to work in three languages in the archives, not only of this country, but of the European states. And she'll go to West Africa as well. I think she was in Senegal, if I, if I remember correctly, where she'll work in some of the archives that were then just being created there as well. So, you know, already she had a, a one up on most U.S. scholars and that she was uh, multilingual and mm -hmm. could get to some of these sources to uncover this more, um, you know, richer history. Uh, because the French and Spanish proprietors of Louisiana uh, kept far more detailed records than their British counterparts, she wrote, in the slave ports on the Atlantic coast, the records showed not only the names of the slaves, but also their birthplaces in Africa, their skills, their health, and in many cases, a description of their personality and degree of rebelliousness. For historians who thought such information was lost or could never be collected and analyzed, the, the, the database that she was able to begin putting together by doing um, research, including research in, in Louisiana, was going to be a game changer now for those who are uh, trying to understand something beyond just the generic African label. In other words, what she found was a wealth of primary source information that she could use, uh, say in her native Louisiana, in the parish registries and the baptisms and courthouse records, you know, estate inventories, wills, etc. She found a variety of specific West African identities staring her in the face, what she called population clusters. Now note, up to this time, it was generally assumed that you couldn't disaggregate African identity. We were stuck with the generic label. As someone said, it's like you can't throw a bunch of eggs into a pan and scramble them up and then take them apart to figure out which egg goes to which part. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And that yeah. was a prevailing notion. But what she found was that wasn't true because instead of it being just a great jumbled mess, the way that the slave trade worked is it tended to work in clusters where you would get, say, a Portuguese ship or a Dutch ship or a French ship going to a specific place along a specific West African coast, say the Senegal coast or the, you know, the, the Ghana coast or something. And they would try to acquire a inventory of enslaved Africans coming from that particular place. And as soon as they did, they would uh, hightail across the Atlantic and usually would deliver those enslaved Africans as a kind of cluster into a specific place, like, say, French Louisiana, right? Mm -hmm. So there was much more continuity that way than a lot of people assume. Clustered in Africa, they were delivered as a kind of ethnic linguistic cl uh, cluster into certain specific places in America. Now, this 
immediately uh, began to change the narrative. Uh, this is groundbreaking works at Ibrahim Sundata, chairman of the history department at Howard University. This was back in 2000. A scholar of African history is Professor Sundiata. Americans have tended to think of slaves as simply being Africans, but now we can begin to understand where these Africans came from and who they were. In other words, thanks to the work that Gwen Hall was doing. We wouldn't have to unscramble the eggs, in other words, Josh, because she said the database she was compiling from primary sources showed that a large majority of slavers, that is slave ships, collected from one or two ports on typically the same coast, and thus the African peoples were not as ethnically fragmented as often assumed. And she was so serious about reconstructing this picture, she created a database that would ultimately have thousands of individual records of enslaved people with information from the specific regions, if not down to the, say, level of a village, nevertheless, specific, identifiably, ethnically, linguistically identifiable places in West Everett. And guess, by the way, who helped her build that database? I, it was it was my old mentor and our former guest, Pat Manning, that, that That's worked right. with, I believe, yeah. Patrick Manning and Gwen, there's a picture of him. In fact, she just published her memoir, Haunted by Slavery. I'd recommend uh, uh, to anyone as a good read. Uh, but get, yeah, there's a picture of Pat in the book. They're sitting in her uh, little courtyard in New Orleans, uh, puzzling over the, <laughs> the historical database records. It's so awesome. Um, so yeah, so Gwen Hall and others have shown that two-thirds of African captives brought to Louisiana in the early part of the slave trade, say before 1730, were from the Senegambia area of West Africa, unlike other ethnic groups that went to other places. Their culture, they brought with them. In other words, being enslaved didn't mean, I mean, as you were stripped of all your material belongings and, and, and your, in effect, your legal identity, formal legal identity, it did not mean that everything that had imprinted itself upon you as a native of Africa right, was likewise lost. Now, you, you carried that with you, the culture, the music, the language, the food, the folklore, all of that comes as well to a place like Louisiana, where it goes into this process that we call creolization. I mean, Gwen Hall was one of the first to really try to apply this idea of creolization, that is this blending, not in a kind of, uh, you know, kind of... Uh, nonsensical, you know, melting pot kind of way, but actual cultural re-identification of African, European, Native American people working with the materials they possessed to create, in effect, what we'll come to call American culture. And so in a place like Louisiana, which, you know, I, I use that example today just because we have limited time, but I mean, the example, because people are familiar with it, it's a little bit easier to sell because when you think of say Creole, you think of Louisiana, right? Mm -hmm. In this you country, think of southern yeah. southern cooking. You think of something like gumbo, for example. Mm -hmm. Well, gumbo, that's a Bantu, that's an African word, right? This is the one pot stew that was familiar to the African, West African, especially foodways, the Senegambian foodways that become then a part of the cuisine, the menu, the food menu, if you will, of Louisiana to this day other loan words you know from senegambia you know banana mm. you know i mean again not a cultural contribution this is in the very fabric of our language does that make sense yeah no no it's 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 it's, it's such an inspiring story um about gwen hall 
for, for so many reasons, both because of just her own journey into, you know, I mean, it's the, it's the, the greatest intellectual journey you can have that there's a fundamental question you want answered and you, you realize the only way you're going to answer that question is to do a lot of work. Yeah. Um, and it also speaks to, you know, what I was saying earlier that so often we, we, you know, I, I don't know if you've had this experience in class. Uh, I've had it before where somebody asks you a question you don't know the answer to and you say, well, nobody knows. And that what you really mean is, I don't, I don't know the answer. And then you start looking to it and you realize, oh, no, no, people actually know the answer. I just never had seen it. I, I, I think that that really does describe a lot of the way history was practiced for a long time is that, you know, it took somebody like, like Gwen Hall to have the, um, the passion, right, the, the drive to look into these questions that people for so long had just been um, uh, happy to just say, well, nobody knows the answer. And not only that, it's impossible to know the answer. When what they really meant is that they hadn't done the work to find the answer. Um, so it, it's it's an amazing story, and it, it really yeah. speaks to yeah. to so much. But but just as um, you know, as, as intellectuals, as historians, as as questioners, right? Um, it yeah. it really shows us that there are so many things out there that we can find the answers to. But it does take the kind of work and dedication that, that Gwen Hall showed there. Um, and Absolutely once it, and once it's yeah. done, then you, it's an entirely different world that that's that's you're, you're exposed to, right? You're seeing stuff that people thought you could not see before. And, and once you see it, you can't unsee it, right? You can see all these threads, yeah. all these influences, all these these uh, areas in which you're seeing not just quote unquote African influences, but very, very specific cultural influences from identifiable places, uh, you know, on that, that Atlantic seaboard of West Africa. Yeah, it's a fundamental perspective shift, you might say, that it's like the bell that can't be un unrung. Mm -hmm. You can't unknow it. Once you know it, and I think sometimes the cynical part, you know, of that kind of, you know, political culture war stuff is just as you said, is in the in the PRC is to keep people from knowing it. Yeah. In other words, the reason why they don't want to get in the trenches with us and start talking about empirical data is because they know what they're going to find. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. That, that that genie gets let out of the bottle and and, you know, suddenly, you know, that insecure power uh, you know, and, and, you know, privilege is, is somehow shaken to its core. You know, the, the other thing that can sometimes happen, you know, though, is that, okay, so we get it. We see interesting food, interesting music. You know, it was Joel Chandler Harris who compiled the so-called Uncle Remus stories after the Civil War that yeah. eventually Disney picked up on. But so did Warner Brothers with like the Bugs Bunny cartoons, the trickster animal cartoons, you know. Mm, yeah. those, those are all African folk tales coming out of these, these West African stories storytelling traditions, oral cultures of West Africa, you know, but but it, but in the what in the in the melting pot, they become, you know, sort of, as you say, smoothed over kind of, uh, uh, you know, made more, um, you know, more Anglo or something. Deculturated, right? Kind of yeah, deculturated. Yeah. And so it ends up being, well, that's a curiosity. You know, isn't that nice? Isn't that quaint? But but that's not the point. I mean, as I tell my students all the time, you guys are all a lot more African than you think. This isn't just some quaint, you know, display in a museum that if you choose to go look at it, you'll see it and move on. It's how we speak. It's the stories we tell. It's the music we listen to. Mm -hmm. You know, that that's not a subculture. That no. is American culture. And I'll leave it to Gwen here to take us out of here. She says, for so long, there was this tendency, even in the most prestigious academic circles, to see Africans as an abstraction coming from a simple single place. But now we're staring or starting to see it as a place of great complexity. Mm 
and the different ethnicities greatly affected the development of African-American culture, or as she puts it, the African roots of all Americans. And having only just scratched the surface today of making the case for looking at these specific, you know, cultural sort of wellsprings from which American culture actually comes, you know, having only scratched the surface, I can only suggest, as, as you have, that what we're really talking about here is knowing, is shaping the perspective and not looking over our shoulder at what the culture warriors do or don't want us to know or not know. I love that those, those examples you just gave. Um, it's again, as I said earlier, just really inspiring about you know the kinds of questions we can ask and and the kind of answers we can come up with. But but also it's it's a good lesson about how we can we can center these things that have been um, presented for so for so long as marginal um, as as uh, in the periphery. And you know I just want to give a quick example here. I said I was reading about uh, Central Asia recently. And uh, Central Asia, to the extent that it's it's known to kind of uh, non-historians, or even I would say to historians, well, well let's be honest, um, is is probably the most famous part of, of about Central Asian history, um, give or take the Mongols, is the Silk Road. Would you say that's, is that fair? Mm-hmm, definitely. I, I, yeah. You know, students who don't really know much about history have heard of the Silk Road or heard of the Silk Roads. And the general way that the Silk Roads are are understood is that they're these trade routes which connect you know, Rome and China, or they connect the Mediterranean with East Asia or something like that. Um, and in, in looking at it that way, what you're focused on is not where the roads actually take you, but where the roads terminate, right? That there are these connective, uh, uh, you know, um, pathways between the, the people who matter, right? The Romans and the Chinese or the Egyptians and the Chinese or, or whoever, whoever it is. Um, what historians have increasingly come to understand, though, about the Silk Roads is the Silk Roads were not built they were not constructed to connect uh, China with Rome. They weren't constructed to connect East and West. It now seems that the, 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 the Silk Roads were constructed from the center and then radiated outward East, South, West, and North as a means of carrying the products of Central Asia to people who would value those products, you know, like those people on, on those peripheries of Eurasia. I'm going to now place the big civilizations on the periphery where they belong, like Northern India, like West Asia, like East Asia, and the Mediterranean. And what you can start to realize once you, you adopt this, this way of seeing it is the thing at the center should actually be seen at the center. That Central Asia, uh, as, you know, as it's called Central Asia, actually was central to so much of what happened in Eurasian history and in broader world history. Um, and so we should look for this kind of thing you know, in all of our history that for so, so often we're kind of overlooking what's right in front of us. Um, and I, I, your example of, of looking at, you know, the African roots of, of, of the United States um, is an amazing example of this. And there's plenty of other examples where we have been looking past what's at the center for so long. So, hey, you, know, I'll, we, I'll, you know what, yeah. I'll give you one because I, yeah. I'm leaping to agree with you, brother. I, what if we, you know, taking the example of, of Gwen Hall's work, what what if we instead, because the standard trope in this, uh, you know, the SVH, the standard version of history 
uh, of the United States is to is is what the geographical monolith known as the thirteen colonies. Yeah. Right. Well, in a lot of ways, that that's I think inadequate in many ways. But one of the ways it's inadequate is what you're suggesting is that if we're looking for the center of something, you know, something that's generating the fundamental energy of of population uh, exchange, of migration, of material development, you know, economics, that sort of thing. In other words, what the, the Portuguese would have called engenho, you know, the engine, right? Yeah. If we're looking for the engine, what if we, instead of the 13 colonies, which is a, is a sovereignty definition, right? That's based on a certain definition of imperial, first imperial and then national sovereignty. What if we cross those boundaries? What if we go to the lowlands of South Carolina and cross south and west across Spanish Florida, you know, and end up in French Louisiana and then mm. follow the rim of the you know, Gulf of Mexico, right? And kind of slingshot our way back toward the West Indies and Cuba, let's say, um, uh, Jamaica. In other words, if we draw that line, not as a political border, but as a kind of um, a, a kind of core of of generative, you know, history, <laughs> right? You know, yeah. that actually explains who we are today and why we live the way we do today. Wouldn't that make a lot more sense than that tired, old, you know, sort of stilted and, you know, stiff sovereignty definition of the 13 colonies. Because really, if we look at the people, whether they be African or we look at the Europeans, whether they be what English, Spanish, French, uh, whether we look at, you know, uh, native folk, for example, you know, living in the Mississippi Basin or the Gulf of Mexico or some of the native indigenous peoples of places in the West Indies. In other words, what we're finding is the engine of history there yeah. it's the encounter of these people not and it's not always what we would consider what a cheery or uplifting encounter we're talking about slavery we're talking about imperial conquest but what we're also talking about is where the history got made yeah fundamentally that explains who we are today and thus gives us a chance to actually confront some of the legacies uh, that we know we live with, including Tulsa, you know, that uh, don't even get acknowledged uh, in the SVH. Right. Um, can, can I take us out with one, one more quote yeah. from Pamela Crossley here? Because I think it really fits in what you were just saying. Do it. Um, she says, Eurasia as a, as a historical proposition is distinguished not by its perimeters, but by its mechanics of articulation, among them trade routes and product exchange, crop dissemination, language, genes, technologies in textiles, ceramics, and metals, and the many dimensions of horse keeping and use. The net effect of Eurasia's east-west continuities was to make Eurasia definable by its permeability. It was the range within which there were no secrets, making it no less a locality of time than of space. And I think that's basically what you were, you were saying about how we need to understand this, this broader Western Hemisphere history as, as well. There were no secrets. There were all these exchanges, and we need to better understand, you know, who provided what, uh, the effects of, of those exchanges, and we need to understand how that constructed a bigger world than the one we're usually um, attuned to look for. The good, the bad, everything. Hey, that was 
Episode 45, everyone. Thank you so much. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one closing your eyes again. So you don't have to see what's happening. Then now, what's going on in these streets? You can't live by what you see on TV. Stuck, stuck in a cycle, so we repeat. Stuck, stuck in a cycle, so we repeat.